Hey, Jared. Hey. Well, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for this good day. And we pray that we would learn and study for your glory and for the good of others and for our own faith and encouragement. Pray to help us again today in Jesus' name. Amen. So worldviews, we've talked about what we, what we look through, not at, at. We'll do a little review here. Next slide, the seven basic worldview questions. Sire in his book has some variations on these, but these are the ones that are helped me. So you can, you can come up with your own um, to help you, like a grid to help make sense as you listen to, as you listen to news or hear people talk. You can come up with your own if you want fewer than this or more than this. That's fine. But have this is kind of the metrics I use to when I hear people talking or listen to news stories. Okay, what are they what are they addressing here, and how is it biblical or not biblical? Next slide. <clears throat> um, that's Sire's reason for studying worldviews. Next slide. Next slide. Um, this was just my point a couple weeks ago. Truth doesn't depend on our ability to live it or defend it. Truth is truth. And so sometimes we, if maybe we, when I was in seminary, I had a philosophy of religion class, really a brilliant teacher. Um, he became a, he was a pretty new instructor then when I had him, but he became a well-known Apologist, and he would go and have um, these debates with leading atheists. And part of the class is we would ha- he would we, he would give us a book um, by an uh, an atheist to read. And this guy was had arguments to try to dismantle the faith. And so I would go, we would go read, we'd read a chapter, come back the next week, and I would read the chapter and go, I don't know how to answer this guy. And then I'd come back the next week and Dr. Bush would help us think through it. And there was one week we came back and there was somebody, a, a master's degree student, literally in tears because we were being made to read this atheist book. And um, Dr. Bush said, look, you're going to be out pastoring in Podunk somewhere. You're going to have these questions. He said, this is the place to do this. And, I, and, and so about halfway through the book and halfway through Dr. Bush helping us learn how to think, I could read the chapter and say, oh, I could start seeing the, the flaws. So he was teaching us how to think that way. So what the guy, what the, the gospel was true even when I couldn't defend it. <laughs> and, and it doesn't depend on your ability to defend it or not. It's just as true. And somebody could, somebody could beat all of us in an argument in some way, but that's really irrelevant to um, what the truth is. Now, few, fewer people could be Aaron in, a, in an argument than they could beat me in an argument. But, um, so, don't, we're not studying this in order to win arguments. We're studying this because it's the truth. Next slide. So, theism is what, generally? A belief in a personal God of some kind. Yep, deism is a belief in a, yeah, he's, uh, an absent God, maybe. Yeah. 
He may be personal, he's just not around. It's like, a, yeah, my dad's personal. I just haven't seen him in, since I was born or whatever. So an, an, an absent God. Um, atheism, naturalism, materialism are all three, three ways of saying basically the same thing, which is no God, uh, naturalism, materialism, all, all, all that exists is matter and energy in some form. Agnosticism, yeah, I don't know. Pantheism, yeah, yeah. And then polytheism, multiple gods, and animism would be a, could be a subset of different religions. Animism, some Native American religions, God is in their gods or spirits, not gods, but spirits and different beings. Next slide. Um, we looked at the the big um, five. We we didn't do we didn't do Christianity per se, but we did the big five. This is actually um, um, these are in the most places in the world. Next slide. Today we're going to look at theodicy and it's and then how different worldviews think about theodicy. So theodicy is the the technical name for um, you can go ahead and hit that next slide. If God exists and God is powerful and God is good, then why is there so much suffering in the world? So it is a defense of God's existence, power, and goodness in the face of human suffering and evil in the world. And different worldviews have different ideas or different answers to theodicy. So this is a this is a philosophical, theological issue that, that touches on every worldview, but this is by far the most personal question that humans have. And so it's impossible to talk about, that you can state this in this very philosophical fashion, but that's not where people live. So when I was thinking about theodicy, thinking about, just watched a show on the Holocaust recently, Thinking about Israel and Gaza and Ukraine, that's still out. That's history. That's other people. Then I think about Nora, my granddaughter. Think about my mom, my niece who died from COVID two years ago. My granddaughter who just died. My dad. Now you're on a different level when it comes to theodicy. So I, I mentioned in church, C.S. Lewis wrote the problem of pain, 1948. Then he wrote a grief observed in 1970-ish, and the problem of pain, he didn't stop believing that, but it was a philosophical, theological theodicy. A grief observed was his wife, Joy, died. And if you read A Grief Observed, did you finish it? Yeah, so Christy just finished it. I reread it a couple weeks ago. If you read A Grief Observed, very different book than The Problem of Pain, and very honest book. And so... Um, as you're thinking about talking to people, you're going to talk to people who are going to discuss this on a theological, philosophical level. But if someone is actually suffering, then I would advise you to stay away from theology and philosophy at that point. How do you rank suffering? You, you think about um, part of a theodicy is, is we can explain some suffering and some evil, but it's when it gets to this much, then it becomes too much for people. Now, philosophically, that's not a, a reasonable argument, 
But how do you rank suffering? So a guy I've become friends with, Charlie Plum, um, he spent, he was um, five days from coming home in the Vietnam War, was an F-4 pilot, got shot down. And five days from coming home, and he spent six years in an eight-by-eight cell with no window, getting tortured, 120 degrees in the summer and below zero in the winter. And you can think six years of that, I mean six days of that, six weeks of that, six months of that, but six years of that. But in talking to Charlie, in his mind, it's like, that's not worse suffering than the loss of a child. It's not worse suffering than the loss of a marriage or loss of a health. So we, we tend to rank it, but he doesn't think of it that way. And so um, it's, it's, it's intensely personal and philosophical. And you can say, well, some, some people, I had a, recently someone who, by anybody's definition of suffering, has suffered. <laughs> he was telling me his story of this summer. And I'm sitting there going, man, that's a lot in one summer. How about you? And he said, well, I have my dad's funeral and then my granddaughter's funeral. He goes, oh, well, mine's nothing compared to that. And I'm thinking, that's not remotely true. You know, so we, we like to rank it. And that's, that's really not how it works. <clears throat> this is the, the, the largest question in the history of human questions, really, when it comes to God. But remember, um, people have had great faith in God before modern medicines, during large-scale suffering, in and through world wars, um, great pandemics. And it's not because they were naive and we're smarter. So it's not like modern world's modern world has somehow shown us that we can't believe in a God and face of suffering. Some people have gone through tremendous suffering with increased faith, like Corey and and Betsy Tinboom, or um, and others have gone through suffering and their faith died. So, I, whenever people are in the middle of suffering. Even if they, I mean, in the middle. So I'm holding, I've told this story before, but Courtney, I'm sitting with her all night while her husband of 36 hours is dying. And she's 25 years old. And so she's asking me why all night. What is she asking me? She's not asking me to give her a theodicy. (laughs) You know, so what I did was held her hand and patted her. I'm here. That's why I said I'm here. So that's the right answer in those moments. A ministry of presence is the right answer in in my a ministry of presence and prayer in those moments is the right answer. It doesn't mean that you don't come back around and give answers. Or our daughter, Casey, who's suffering. And, you know, um, when we spent the week with her, the week the baby died, you know, she, it would have been just terrible to start discussing the odyssey with her in that situation. So we were just there. So... I'm, talk, I'm, I'm giving you this so that you won't, I don't think anybody in this room would, but don't, don't do theodicy to people who are in the middle of suffering. Um, just do, do presence and prayer. And then God will maybe give you the opportunity sometime to circle back around. So here's a non-believer formulation of theodicy. If Christianity is true, then God is both benevolent towards humankind and infinitely powerful. That's the formulation, premise one. <clears throat> premise two, if God is benevolent towards humankind and infinitely powerful, then he will see to it that we do not suffer. That's premise two. God does not see to it that we do not suffer. Therefore, Christianity is false since God is either not benevolent or not powerful. That's, in essence, what a lot of um, the new atheists have, have made as their number one argument against God. 
there's a problem with some of those premises, though. God's love, first, in the Bible, God's love is not just sentiment. It's devotion to the well-being of his people and to his own glory. So first of all, they're, they're describing love in a certain way. My, grandskin, my grandkids would sometimes say, I don't love them. <laughs> uh, other times they would, and they're just, their defining love is, gee, I'm gee, giving them what they want in the moment. The other is that um, God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent, but God cannot do anything. So there's a difference. God cannot do which, that which is mutually exclusive. So God can't make a square circle. That's just mumbo-jumbo. That's not a real thing. <clears throat> God can't lie. God can't die. So God can do anything that can be done, but he can't do something that's logically incoherent. And so he can't make a world where mutually exclusive things happen. So he can't make a world where uh, that contains a possibility of evil and also contains the greatest possibility of good. And so this is, this is the world that we have. And God in his wisdom has decided this is the world that's best to make. So we don't have any evidence that the good world that we blame God for not creating would suit us any better than this one. We're not smarter than him. If we made a world, we'd make a world like this. How would you make that world? Well, people wouldn't sin or there wouldn't be evil or there wouldn't be... Okay, what are, the, what are all the implications for that world? A world where there can be no evil. And C.S. Lewis is a master at this. He talks about what, what are you going to do when... Okay, okay suddenly no, no more evil is allowed. And so the person gets ready to kick the dog and their leg gets paralyzed. You know, they get ready to curse somebody out and vocal cords don't work. You know, you get ready to hit someone with a stick and the stick turns to rubber, whatever. Then after a while, people will stop trying. I mean, after a while, if it happens enough, people will stop trying to curse. People will stop trying to kick because it just doesn't work. But what's happened in their hearts? Has anything happened different in their hearts? Nothing's happened different. They're just cursing them in their hearts. They just learned it doesn't, it doesn't do any good to say it because... You know, God's just going to turn the sounds into, into air. So for God to make a world <clears throat> that, for God to make everybody happy, he'd have to make a world for everybody, a different world for everybody. And, and God's just not obligated to suit our personal taste. He doesn't answer to us. So if you're going to have moral agents where we can choose or not choose God, love, right, wrong, in community with other people, you're going to have something probably very much like our world. And since God is really smart, something exactly like our world. And that's what we have. We have a world where God has decided this is the best possible of worlds. And there's and and some people would say now, well, that's our world. You know, we're in the we're in the multiverse, and there's no science behind that theory. It's pure fiction. It's, a, it's just a Hail Mary by some physicists to try to deal with mystery and the design of the cosmos. This is the, this is the world that exists. And this is the world that God wanted to exist. And so I can, by faith, and logically say this is the best of all possible worlds. So um, here's some different <clears throat> worldview solutions um, if God, if God exists and God is good and God is powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? He's either not there, not good, or not powerful. So not, not there, naturalism says, well, God's not there. 
We'll talk about this more in a second. Pantheism, God is not good because you can't use those distinctions. Evil and good are false constructs. Whatever is, is. And then liberal theology, which we didn't really talk about, but it's a, a perversion of Christian doctrine, says that, that, um, that, should, that should say God is not powerful, not God is not there, good. Liberal theology. So God is not there, God is not good, and God is not powerful. Liberal theology has a God who, who empathizes with people but can't really do anything about it. So um, he has limited power. Let's look at some worldviews and how they approach um, evil and suffering. So deism, Douglas life. Yes, yeah, so deism. Um, <clears throat> how do you think deism would address the problem of evil and suffering? This watch, he's a watchmaker who made the watch, wound it up, and then went off. How would, you, how would they answer why is there suffering in the world? What would you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are some, what are some besides it's not true, but what are some problems with that? Um, he's not good, but he's, he's also not powerful because he built a faulty watch <laughs> to start with. I mean, why, did, why if, <clears throat> if suffering is a problem, then... Why'd the watch break down? And it could be, he, it could be some for some deists know suffering is, we'll look at biblical motifs, but suffering is important for soul making, you know, growth. Suffering is important for humans. So he built the watch <clears throat> so that suffering is a part of the system. But he still, he's not really involved. So you can't, you can't call, you know, an absent dad a good dad. So he's not good. The problem with, or, or the, the inconsistency is, is deists cry out to the watchmaker and despair of his will when suffering comes. So um, they don't live consistently. Most of them haven't lived consistently with that. Naturalism, what would they say to the answer of, to theodicy? Atheism, naturalism. God is, if God is there and God is good and God is powerful, why is so much evil? Well, God is not there. The world itself is a chance occurrence. Things just happen. Alexander Pope, an atheist, said, whatever is, is right. It's just, this is just the way things are. So what, practically speaking, what are, what are some of the problems with that approach to evil and suffering? <laughs> There's a lot of them, but what are some of them? It's hopeless. Yeah. It's, it's hopeless. Yes. Exactly. So if I'm a consistent atheist, consistent atheist with my worldview, then there is no distinction between helping an old lady cross the street and throwing her in front of the bus. Not in absolute terms. There's no distinction. No sane human being really believes that. But that's the logical outcome of it. What, what are other problems with naturalism and evil and suffering? What's that? Right, exactly. Yes. Yep. And, what's that? 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Hitchens wrote a book, God is Not Great. Wasn't it Chris Hitchens wrote that, Aaron? God is Not Great. Why? Huh? Yeah, why? And, and it's why religion has done so much harm in the world. And he'll talk about the Crusades, which killed, you know, and we can debate that, a few, some thousands of people, or the Salem Witch Trials, which killed a dozen people. But atheism as a state religion killed, and, and, and Mao's China killed up to 100 million people. And, um, and Stalin's Russia, 60 million people. And Paul Potts, Cambodia, millions of people. And then Hitler, <clears throat> Hitler, Hitler was not a Christian. He was a practical atheist. And so, um, yeah, atheism is deadly. It's the deadliest, it's the deadliest ideology in the history of, of the world. Um, the other problem with naturalism is if you're going to be, if you're going to even formulate that question, if God is good and God is, if God is there and God is good and God is powerful, um, if you're an atheist, how do you even have a distinction between God and where does the, where does the category of evil and good even come from? So they, they're, they're cheating to even say this is good versus this is bad. Because it's, it's not good or bad. It's like I like vanilla ice cream, you like chocolate ice cream. I like hurting people, you like helping people. So the whole category of good and evil, or they're gone, completely gone. Aaron, you have anything to add to that? Any thoughts to add to that? meanings built into us. God's put eternity in our hearts. Pantheism, uh, <clears throat> the, the whole distinctions of good and evil are illusion. So good versus evil are illusion. It's, it's all one, but then, but then they believe in karma. What is karma but a category of good versus bad distinctions? And it's not even a matter of whether some parts of the world disagree about what's right or wrong. But universally, everybody in the world has categories of right or wrong. Where do those come from? Well, they come from God. And by and large, most people do generally have, you know, apart from where people have just gone nuts, there are certain things that people know intuitively are right and wrong. And it removes, so in, in um, pantheism, it removes motivation for working to alleviate suffering motivation to love to grow for others so we didn't talk about existentialism but existential um, existentialism is is the word it means you find existentialism as a belief system was finding finding meaning in some experience so existential threat means threat to your existence so people in existentialists they can be christian existentialists or atheistic existentialists but they're finding a meaning in some experience. And it sounds kind of weird, but if you were to say, um, someone might say, I was really struggling, I was depressed, I was going to kill myself, and I looked up and I saw the stars, and I felt like I had purpose. I say, well, why did you feel that way? What difference does that make? I had an experience. Or I smoked dope and felt, you know, I had an experience. Or I saw my baby's eyes. You know, on and on it goes. But there's some kind of experience that they felt that 
for some reason, they felt like there was purpose. That's the key. They felt like there was purpose. And it's, 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 it's untethered to objective reality. It's my existential experience. So you find your own meaning in suffering. So practically, the problem with existentialism, because people can say, I have meaning in suffering. And you'll watch movies of people who've, you know, shark bit off their leg or whatever. I know, I know that, that girl was a Christian, but something happens to them. And then they talk to them and they found meaning in their suffering. Sometimes if you track these people's stories out, if they live long enough, you'll find, and I've, I've done this with a few people 10, 15, 20 years later, they no longer found meaning in suffering. They were bitter people. Existentialism works until it doesn't. Because if, if, you're, if you're measuring meaning by your experience, what happens when that experience loses steam? So existential, existentialism works until it doesn't. And very often it'll, it'll fail people at the worst possible time. Christianity, um, there's a reason for suffer, that there's a, ultimately there's a, a beginning reason for all evil and suffering, the fall of man. There's meaning in suffering, ultimately the cross, and there's motivation for action to alleviate suffering, <clears throat> love and faith. And so Christianity, in the fullest sense, addresses this problem. And so I want to go over the, the seven biblical, you can go to the next. These are the seven, the, the Bible doesn't have an easy button answer to this. And there are scriptures, but but there are themes, or some people call these motifs, because they're woven into stories and psalms and direct teaching. These are the seven biblical motifs or themes that address evil, God's goodness, God's power, um, and, and evil and suffering. And so you can, I'll, I'll list these. I didn't give a bunch of verses and chapters, because you, <clears throat> you guys have all read the Bible, and you'll recognize these, where they come from. But one biblical motif is evangelism. Suffering opens people's hearts to God. Uh, Joseph in the old Joseph, you know, um, in the Old Testament, his suffering opened him up to God, the whole nation of Israel, and the 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 um, captivity, Babylonian captivity. You jump to the the New Testament. <clears throat> um, over and over and over, God used suffering to draw people to himself that's just one answer and and um i've known people who came to christ through suffering one of my two of my closest friends came to christ through suffering and people like i said about chuck colson people will sometimes mock foxhole conversions but all it means is suffering helps um, take the lid off of people's empty lives the second motif in Scripture is um, growth, or sometimes called soul building. Paul and his thorn, he prayed three times that God would take this thorn, whatever it was from him. And, and God said, no, 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 my strength is made evident in your weakness. And everybody in this room can say, <clears throat> I got that one. You know, I've, I mean, who, who in this room hasn't grown through suffering? And I was talking to a friend this morning who we were both talking about terrible times in our lives, and they were also the most powerful times in our lives. And I said, I told him this morning, I said, now if God said, Terry, I'll, I'll give you that same powerful experience 
where people were impacted and you were impacted, but you got to go through the same suffering. I say, I'm good. You know, and that's terrible. But that's why God doesn't give us a choice. Because, <laughs> I mean, maybe you would, but if you've really been through times of suffering and God says, I'll give you the suffering, um, I think most of us, if he gave us a choice, would opt out. You know, how about if I can have a, you know, half the impact and a third the suffering? But he doesn't give us that, that choice because he's good. And then the, a third theme in Scripture is just to the glory of God revealed. And it could be revealed through judgment. It could also be <clears throat> revealed through the, the power of the gospel. You know, when the disciples said, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. This was so that God would be glorified. And, um, and, and often, all, often multiple themes will blend together in people's lives. So our granddaughter, Nora, I mean, she suffers, her family suffers. Um, she's been home on, hooked to her vent oxygen for the last two weeks because she got a, basically got a cold. And so her, her life is hard, her parents' life is hard. But if, if, I, could, if I could write, I could write volumes on the glory of God through her life and through what's happened in the good in the lives of other people so but if you ask any of us again you can you can have nora completely healed of cchs but she won't bring god as much glory god don't ask me that because <laughs> i would opt out and you say well you're a man of little faith i agree but i would opt out but he doesn't give us that choice and then sin, another biblical motif is sin. Ananias and Sapphira, Exodus, um, Genesis, you know, the whole Bible's full of that. So evil and suffering is a result of sin. And sometimes sin is visited to the third and fourth and fifth generations. And it's terrible and heartbreaking to watch children suffer because of what their parents did. Right now we're seeing suffering unimaginable suffering in Gaza because of human sin. And um, who sinned? Lots of human sins. And then a fifth biblical motif or theme is Satan. Um, Satan, the, there was a young man in the scripture who was tortured by Satan and would, Satan would throw him in the fires and try to drown him. And his suffering was directly demonic. It was also to bring glory to God when God healed him. But there's a real live enemy who wants harm and evil, and when he can, he will do harm to um, all people. So that's another motif. Some world religions have this um, yin and yang, you know, where you've got the evil and dark or opposing, equal and opposing forces, and, and that's not the way it is. There's not God and his equal opposite Satan. Satan is just a fallen, created being. So he's on a leash but for God's own purposes, he's not caged up yet. He will be someday. <clears throat> and then there's another biblical motif, and this feels like a cop-out to people, but it's not. It's not a cop-out. It's, it's reality that um, mo some of this is just way above our pay grade, mystery. Job had no idea. We, the reader, knows what's going on in Job's life. Job, in, this, in, the, in the book, never understands the purposes behind it. In the end, he's not even given an explanation. He's just said... Where were you when I made the world? And Job's like, okay, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And so he never gets an answer. We, we get the backstory. He doesn't get an answer. 
And Edith Schaefer, um, Francis Schaefer's wife, wrote a book um, that really helped Christy years ago when she was going through suffering. And she talks about a, a tapestry. If you see the tapestry from the backside, it's all knots, random knots. You turn around and there's this beautiful picture. And that's part of the mystery. There, you know, from God's view, there's this tapestry being built. From our view, we're looking at the knot side of the knotty side of things. And then the seventh and the most important answer in the Bible is the cross. And that's the whole already not yet kingdom of God, already not yet salvation. God, if you're good and you're there and you're powerful, why don't you do something about suffering? I have. Christ has come. I will. Christ will return. And we live in the middle of the end. All times now are end times. And so the cross is, <clears throat> the cross is, is like, and this is not a great analogy, but it's like the, the, um, the child getting a shot <laughs> and asking mom why, and mom just, you know, hugs the child or brings the child close or better yet is willing to die for the child. This is the final answer in Scripture. And uh, a guy named Gottman, who's not a believer, he said that trust removes an enormous source of stress in relationships because it allows you to act with incomplete information. And so the cross builds trust. And then because we trust, our stress goes down because when, when, when I trust Christy, I, I can operate with incomplete information. And I've said before, as trust goes down, information has to get closer and closer to perfect guess what? It's not going to get close to perfect. And so the cross is, is to build trust in God. And we don't have to understand all of it. And for people who are, for Christians, that makes sense. We get that. For non-Christians, it can sound like a cop-out. Um, some philosophical issues. Um, again, how can we call evil evil without a standard to compare it to? Where does the standard come from? So Naturalists can't have it both ways. If, if evil disproves God, then the idea of evil... Um, you forget that slide right now, Aaron. You can back up. The idea of evil then proves him. Does that make sense? If, if evil disproves him, the fact that you're saying there's an evil and there's a good proves him, because where does that standard even come from? And if, if it comes from evolution, well, evolution really screwed up because why did it create this sense in us of, of eternal values and we're, and we're not? We're just matter in different forms. <clears throat> if evil and suffering were not possible, where would choice go? And without getting into the whole biblical complexity of God's sovereignty and human choice, um, like I said before, God has made a world where... where um, the best possible worlds that allows for choice and freedom and love and also includes his sovereignty. If you figured it out, that's great. I haven't yet. But this is a... Um, he could have made a world with non, a non-free world, which would have been a world of robots. No possibility of evil, I guess, unless the robots fall and run amok too. <laughs> but he could have created a world of autom- you know, automations, but that's not a moral, moral world. There's no possibility for love. He could have made a free world where sin's impossible, but that's saying the same thing a different way. It's not a free world. What we have is the world we have right now. It's a world of the mystery of sovereignty and 
human choice. And it comes back to, are we going to trust God or ourselves? And so when I look at, when I think about hell, and I think about um, Gaza, or I think about babies and, and suffering in hospitals, it's really difficult. If, if it's not difficult for you, then there's something wrong. But at that point, you've got two choices. You can trust yourself, or you can trust God. You can trust your own reasoning, or you can, if you trust yourself, you can say, well, um, I don't think God is there, or I don't think God is good, or I don't think God is powerful. Well, that's still trusting yourself, because where do you come up with those, those conclusions? If you say, we, we believe God has spoken in Scripture and in Christ His Son, then what does Christ show us, and what does Scripture say to us about this? And you're going to go back and you're going to look at these and you're going to end up always at the cross. I trust you. So Christianity offers the fullest description of what we see in the world. A world where there is clearly good and there is clearly evil. A world where um, we can proactively act against evil, but there's a reason why it's here. We can... um, because of um, the Christian faith, we can mourn with those who mourn and we can rejoice with those who rejoice at the same time. And whatever is, is not right, we can, we can proactively, and, Christ, and Christians have most consistently proactively acted against what's not right. Whether it's child labor, slaves, even ecological issues. I know a lot of those have been hijacked but Christians have consistently been at the front of all that. So what, what, um, what questions or thoughts do you have about theodicy and then other world views, or even just the Christian worldview, if any? I'll give you mine while you're thinking. Um, some people say, have said, yeah, I can, I can go along with some S-O-M-E suffering, but it's the sum, S-U-M, the total weight of human suffering that now makes me an unbeliever. That makes sense? So, yeah, I can say how God can use some suffering for evangelism, but when you start putting it on a scale what they call the sum weight of human suffering, it's too much. I can't believe in God anymore. That's why people have been, sometimes have been believers or maybe nominal believers, and then <clears throat> they've experienced, um, we were watching a show the other night where there was a, a disaster in Wales back in the 60s where a school was, a, a landslide buried a school and killed a couple hundred school children at once, and people just begin at that point to question God. It was a sum, but, but you know, every, every year, thousands and thousands of kids die every year, so it's happening, but it's when it's right in our face. And C.S. Lewis's answer to that was, no one suffers the weight of human suffering. That's not a real thing. No one can suffer more than a person can suffer. And so we look at it and add it up, like, okay, there's, I can make sense out of Robert's suffering, but I can't make sense out of those 20,000 people's suffering. That's the sum weight, but that sum weight's in our imagination. There's, and one human can suffer a lot, don't get me wrong. But this idea of some, the sum of human suffering doesn't make the problem 
um, more illogical. It doesn't add new data to it. We still have to either trust God or not. If there was one person, if all of humans in the, that ever existed, um, billions of humans all had great lives and died healthy, and then one person suffered, it's still the question of, God, how are you good if that one person suffered? Still the same question. So usually it's when um, people are confronted for the first time with vast amount of suffering. They, or they think about it for the first time, or they experience it personally. They go into combat, or, or something happens, and they see a disaster where 10 children were killed in this house fire, and they say, I, can't, I can no longer believe in God. Did you guys hear, you guys follow the ridiculous, the soccer player who, last week, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so it's almost too ridiculous to mention, but you know, she 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 got injured first few minutes of her soccer game, soccer of a soccer game, a soccer round, and um, she just came back from right from injuries or something. It's her first time back, and you can look it up. I didn't even, I didn't even have the stomach to read the whole thing because it was just so so nauseating. But she said, "This is proof that God doesn't exist." You know, you talk about that's the narcissist argument against God. Um, here she's a she's a she's thunder nose at God. She's lived like a she lived in luxury. She's played a game for a living, and then she gets hurt playing a game. And she, this is proof for her that God doesn't exist. I didn't need to say anything because like everybody went after her on <laughs> on the news. But um, so it, it doesn't even have to be a lot of evil. It can just be. Something that's very, very personal to me. And it's not new data against God. It's just my personal experience. Um, <clears throat> what about hell, the ultimate suffering? And for, for non-believers and for believers, this has been a big one. It seems very disproportionate. Temporal choices, eternal consequences. Seems, seems very challenging. And again, Lewis is helpful in that. He said, we assume, that, we assume that more time would change people. You know, so people who die rejecting God, that if we put them in hell, separation from God, eternity, that over time they would say, hey, I want out of here. I now want God. And if you've, if you've ever, if, if my favorite book on heaven and hell, and this is, is the, the Great Divorce, it's, a, it's basically a, an allegory, parable. It's not a theology of, of hell and heaven, but it's a brilliant book on how if you take someone who's, who dies without Christ and you put them into eternity, they become more and more ruined beings, not suddenly better and better and now wanting God. And think about, you know, like G.K. Chesterton, that was kind of the idea behind Gollum, I think. You know, that Gollum had this ring of power, and he became more and more of a ruined being over time. And then um, what about the innocent who suffer? That's a hard one. You know, what do you do with that? And you can say, well, none are innocent. I get that. But, but that's fine. That's a great theological, philosophical answer. And it's, it's, it's true biblically. But tell that to someone who just lost their baby. You know, or someone whose baby, like uh, out the base, who just I won't even, I won't even say it. Just a horrible, horrible thing happens. So 
there's the, there is that, <clears throat> that answer of none are innocent, none are sinless. But um, I think, you again, you go to the cross with people who, who are asking that, do, why do innocent suffer? You go to the cross. That's where God's grace and mercy were, were evidence were shown. And, um, and you also, in terms of hell or innocent who suffer, you know, we don't presume to know what God does in people's final moments. Or, you know, we don't know what's going on in their lives. So we don't presume. So something is true and real. Some worldview is true and real. Naturalism, deism, um, atheism, pantheism. And one of those is true and real, and what's not true and real is everything else. And so we're not left with, well, you know, I don't, I don't like the answers any of them gives, really. But something, we're here, and something's true and something's not true. Which one is, gives the most conclusive, consistent evidence that matches what's there? To me, clearly, Christianity uh, hands down does. Aaron, why don't you come on up? We're going to shift gears a little bit. There's a lot of good resources out there on um, evil and suffering. C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain is, is philosophical. It does, some people don't like it that much. Um, um, Tim Keller wrote a good book that's more... I can't think of the name of Do you remember the name of it? On suffering that's more... Useful. There was a, a book that's a free book that came out a couple of years ago that Christie's reading right now on lament by a pastor who they lost their their um, full term baby, and it's it's a biblical approach to suffering, like like lamenting in the Psalms. So there's lots of resources out there on building our our minds around this. Do you want to use that or this? Uh, I'll use this. Okay. So tell them what you're going to talk about. We're shifting gears a little bit, but tell them what you're going to talk about. 